Catalyst is a unique five-year government-backed business development program that unlocks the vast potential of economic partnerships between Australia and Indonesia. Where do you look to for advice on breaking into the export market? Google? Business forums? How about TikTok? Hello, good morning everyone. Jadi kali ini saya mau bahas menjawab banyak sekali pertanyaan yang muncul di kolom komentar. Kenapa sih kita harus ekspor toh dengan jualan lokal aja kita juga bisa dapat cuan kok. Ya kalau memang passion kalian itu berjualan lokal ya masalah, it's okay. Itu kan pilihan ya. Tapi kalau kalian nanya kenapa saya prefer jualan ekspor daripada jualan lokal, yang pasti adalah karena persaingan di dalam negeri ini sudah sangat penuh sesak guys. Dimana kita harus bersaing dengan sesama produsen yang menghasilkan produk yang sama, tapi kadang-kadang sesama produsen ini suka banding-bandingan harga, sehingga harga di luaran ini bisa hancur lebur. Kedua, kalau kita jualan lokal, kita tuh paling hanya berhadapan dengan market sekitar 250 juta orang Indonesia. Tapi kalau kita jual keluar, maka di sana ada sekitar 7 miliar orang yang bisa menerima produk kita. Dan untuk mencari pembeli itu banyak sekali tools-toolsnya, guys. Jadi kapan bisa jadi eksportir? That was Ibu Dewi Hollis. Ibu Dewi is the CEO of Diva Prima Semolang, an Indonesian company that has exported human hair eyelashes to more than 16 countries. Her production is based in two regencies in central Java, where she employs around 300 female workers across the value chain. And as you've just heard, she's also a TikTok superstar, using the platform to share her tips and experiences as an exporter. She's an inspiration to many SMEs in Indonesia and abroad, and she's the first guest on today's podcast. I'm Rachel Mason Nunn, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sondang Suray. As you'll hear, this podcast is in Bahasa, Indonesia. You can find the full English transcript in the show notes. Hai Ibu Dewi, apa kabar? Baik, baik Bu Sondang, apa kabar juga? Kabar baik. Ibu Dewi, Anda dikenal sebagai pionir ekspor UKM. Nah, bagaimana cerita awalnya memulai usaha ekspor? Produk apa yang dijual? Sudah masuk ke pasar mana saja? Dan juga apakah sempat masuk ke pasar Australia? Banyak ya Bu pertanyaannya, langsung aja Bu. Oke, okay, ya. Sebenarnya kalau dibilang pioner nggak juga kali ya Bu ya, karena saya yakin masih banyak sebenarnya UKM-UKM ekspor itu yang apa uh, yang pasti juga sudah lebih lebih mendunia dari saya gitu ya. Jadi uh, memang pada awalnya itu uh, produk main produk kami itu bulu mata palsu yang uh, alhamdulillah sih sampai hari ini tuh sudah sampai ke sekitar 16 negara. Uh, dari Eropa, Amerika, lalu uh, Middle East. Cuman kalau Australia memang belum, belum kita belum belum masuk ke Australia. Makanya harapannya tahun ini dengan kerjasama dengan Katalis kita bisa masuk ke market Australia. Australia itu kita pernah beberapa tahun yang lalu itu kita pernah kirim sampel, tapi sepertinya uh, masih belum approve ya. Kita udah bolak-balik pada saat itu, lalu uh, buyer itu minta satu spek yang Indonesia itu masih belum bisa bikin, yang jadi pada saat itu baru Cina aja yang bisa bikin sehingga akhirnya kita pas nah rencananya itu nanti tahun ini juga kita pengen upload lagi itu bayar dari Australia gitu. Kalau boleh nanya bu, kenapa bulu mata? Ya karena uh, untuk bulu mata yang berbahan baku rambut orang ini 
Indonesia sampai hari ini masih menjadi satu-satunya supplier untuk seluruh dunia, Bu. Sehingga dengan punya dengan memasarkan produk yang tidak ada kompetitornya dari negara lain, buat kami itu lebih mudah untuk menembus uh, market global. Jadi kalau untuk saat ini uh, kompetitor kita itu China sama Vietnam, cuman mereka itu bisanya itu membuat yang berbahan baku sintetik. Sintetik karena sintetik ini dibuat by mesin, sedangkan kalau rambut orang itu 100% handmade. Dan skillnya yang bisa untuk membuat uh, bulu mata berbahan baku rambut orang itu masih orang Indonesia aja. Ah, Ibu tadi mention mengenai bahan baku yang alami ya. Satu lagi yang sekarang sedang banyak jadi omongan, obrolan adalah mengenai trend sustainability atau keberlanjutan di mana ada banyak negara sekarang memperlakukan peraturan dekarbonisasi, mereka ingin atau bayarnya diharuskan agar membeli produk dari produsen atau negara yang menghindari praktek-praktek yang merusak lingkungan. Apakah dalam industri ibu sudah mulai ada pemikiran ke arah sana? Sebetulnya memang jujur kalau sampai saat ini belum ada sih, cuman kalau kita bandingkan antara produk kita dibandingkan dengan uh, kompetitor negara lain, itu kalau kompetitor itu kan produk mereka itu uh, dari bahan sintetik atau fiber atau plastik. Dan uh, yang dari Indonesia ini, uh, produk kita ini dari rambut orang, sehingga dia lebih alami dibandingkan dengan plastik. Seperti itu sih. Jadi keunggulan kita kalau di uh, sisi sustainability-nya dibandingkan dengan kompetitor itu dari sisi uh, bahan bakunya. Kemudian Ibu, latar belakang Ibu dulu lama ya bekerja di perusahaan multinasional. Nah tentunya pengalaman itu berguna ya Bu dalam mengembangkan usaha sekarang ini. Kalau misalnya Ibu ditanya, ada nggak saran untuk perempuan yang ingin mengembangkan sayap usaha melalui ekspor yang tadinya hanya industri rumah tangga, mungkin pengen gitu untuk masuk ke dunia ekspor, merambah ekspor. Kalau boleh memberikan saran Ibu? Iya. Kalau uh, based on experience saya ya sebetulnya ekspor itu kalau dibilang sulit ya uh, mudah, dibilang mudah karena juga sulit gitu. Jadi sebetulnya balik lagi balik lagi ke mindset kita. Ketika kita uh, berpikir bahwa ini mudah, maka ya insya Allah dan kita akan dimudahkan juga. Dan itu yang terjadi gitu. Yang uh, ka, yang kami alami sama ini dan yang saya lakukan memang. 100% bayar-bayar saya ini saya dapatkan hanya melalui internet. Jadi uh, semuanya kami kita saya kerjakan dari rumah lewat apa uh, lewat apa uh, internet gitu ya. Jadi kita browsing-browsing uh, di situs-situs bayar finder, lalu di Instagram, di media sosial yang lainnya juga, lalu uh, kita upload, lalu uh, lanjut ke WhatsApp, lanjut ke telepon, lalu kirim sampel, setelah kirim sampel, sampel approve baru blessing order, non payment dan sebagainya seperti itu. Jadi sebetulnya kalau menurut kita tuh bisnis ekspor itu bukan sesuatu yang sulit untuk dilakukan ya. itu sesuatu hal yang mudah selama kalau kita tahu how to-nya dan kita bisa mencari negara-negara tujuan itu yang persyaratannya tidak sulit untuk ditembus itu dulu sih karena sama ini seperti yang kita tahu mindset orang itu kalau udah dengar kata ekspor, ekspor itu susah, ribet, lalu uh, butuh modal besar, persyaratannya juga berat gitu ya. Padahal sebetulnya 
bahkan bisa dilakukan tanpa modal seperti yang apa kami jalankan selama ini gitu jadi beneran kita tuh yang memang kalau dibilang modal dengkul ya modal dengkul kita cuman mainin sistem pembayarannya buyer dan supplier aja gitu modal internet juga ya bu ya ah oh, ya modal kuota internet yang pasti Kedengerannya kok mudah kalau dengerin ibu jelasin kok bisa di rumah aja apalagi internet semuanya bisa. Tapi dari pengalaman ibu juga tantangannya apa bu selama ini? Ya sebetulnya gini sebenarnya kita tuh nggak pernah kepikiran untuk ngebuka kelas ekspor itu nggak cuman karena banyak banget ketika saya bikin konten daily life sebagai seorang ibu rumah tangga yang Jadi eksporter gitu ya, nah itu kan banyak yang nanya-nanya minta diajari. Nah, selama ini kan saya ngajarin uh, kan nggak nggak efektif juga kalau cuman by chatting dan sebagainya. Ada ya udah deh kita buka kelas aja gitu. Yang paling banyak ditanya pasti nomor satu cari buyer. Cari buyernya di mana sih gitu? Padahal sebetulnya buyer itu kan banyak gitu ya, dan buyer itu bertebaran. Buyer itu banyak sekali bisa kita temukan di mana-mana gitu. Challenge-nya bukan dicari buyer-nya, meyakinkan si buyer untuk mau beli sama kita itu di situ challenge-nya. Saya mau nanya lagi nih mengenai bagaimana usaha Ibu di Purworejo ya, Bu, di Jawa Tengah. Sampai sekarang bagaimana perkembangannya dan usaha Ibu bagaimana sejauh mana sudah membantu perempuan di Purworejo juga mereka yang mungkin terkena imbasnya dari usaha Ibu di sana. Sejauh mana usaha ini telah mendorong sosial ekonomi di wilayah itu. Iya, jadi sebetulnya uh, untuk belum mata palsu ini kan memang sistem kita memang kita tidak memproduksi. Jadi uh, belum mata palsu itu pembuatan belum mata palsu itu proses produksinya itu ada 11 proses gitu dari awal sampai akhir itu ada 11 tahapan proses dan yang kita kerjakan di dalam di dalam workshop itu hanya dua proses terakhir. yaitu proses quality control, final checking, dan proses packing. Nah, proses 1 sampai dengan proses 9 itu semua dikerjakan di luar dengan pemberdayaan dari 90% para ibu rumah tangga. gitu. Jadi, kalau pagi mereka datang ngambil bahan baku sama bahan, lalu mereka bawa pulang, dikerjakan ke rumah, besoknya mereka store dan seterusnya. Gitu. Sehingga... Dengan seperti ini memang ya Alhamdulillah banyak ibu rumah tangga yang terbantu dengan adanya uh, workshop bulu mata ini di Purworejo gitu. Hmm, ada berapa pekerja usaha ibu sekarang? Kalau ibu-ibu rumah tangga yang terlibat itu ada sekitar, kalau, kalau sebetulnya kita punya dua workshop di Purworejo dan Purbalingga gitu ya. Untuk saat ini memang yang terbanyak masih di Purbalingga, Bu. Karena sebenarnya si Purbalingga itu sentranya belum mata. Dan Purworejo ini sebenarnya saya juga masih merintis sekitar uh, 2 tahun terakhir ini baru merintis di Purworejo. Sehingga uh, Purworejo ini, jadi dari 11 tahapan proses itu, di Purworejo itu uh, mengerjakan proses 1 sampai proses 5, lalu proses 6 dan seterusnya itu kita kerjakan di Purbalingga. Nah, kalau di total uh, jumlah Ibu-ibu yang terlibat itu ada sekitar 300 orang mungkin sampai hari. Tapi itu sebetulnya plus minus tergantung dari banyaknya order. Jadi kalau misalkan ordernya nambah, ya ibu-ibunya semakin banyak yang terlibat. Jadi kalau ordernya lagi sedikit, ya ibu-ibunya sedikit yang terlibat. Gitu aja sih, Bu. Karena kita meet by order sebetulnya. Baik, Ibu Dewi. Terima kasih atas waktunya. 
Sama-sama Bu, terima kasih juga atas kesempatannya. That was Ibu Dewi Halas. Amanda Robbins, Managing Director of Equity Economics, recently spoke on the opportunities for women in trade at the Australasian Aid Conference. Sundang caught up with Amanda. Hi, Amanda. Great to have you on the show and on this topic, opportunities for women in trade. In this case, of course, we're talking about the context of Indonesia and Australia. Now, let me begin with a a basic question, if not a paradox. Is more trade always better for women? Hi, Sondang. I love that this is starting with a basic question, and I'd love to give you a definitive yes or no. But The answer to the question, is trade always good for women, is really it depends. And it depends on a range of factors. And I thought it might be helpful to kind of talk through what some of those factors are today. For instance, when you think about trade, it's not always obvious to everyone that we would be talking about trade and gender in the first place. Goods and services are traded and people consume them or they don't and there's barriers in that um, in trade. But what is really gendered about it is often a question that surprises people. But it doesn't take too long to look at um, trade policy and trade agreements to quickly see that um, the consequences of trade can be very gendered, um, both in terms of where the advantages and the risks really fall and on whom they fall. Uh, For instance, you you typically open a trade agreement and often they really start from some really traditional sectors where we're trying to open and deepen trade, sectors like manufacturing, and those sectors are often really um, male-dominated industries. So from a starting point in trade, we're often talking about sectors that tend to, where we get uh, benefits from trade, really do tend to be predominantly focused on sectors that might be male-dominated. That is changing and that's why the conversation around trade and gender is really emerging Um, and there's lots of really interesting um, evidence coming out of that. I guess your question of is it always better for women? Well, the depends really comes down to at a macroeconomic level. We, the orthodox theory is, and we, as we've seen from the Australian economy, is that trade does tend to lead to increased jobs through increased investment. It can drive productivity through increased uh, technological change, uh, transfer, skills transfer, and it can also increase um, or reduce the cost of imports and goods, which has, like as we talk about now in both Australia and Indonesia, is really important when we're facing huge inflationary pressures. So at a macro level, we tend to think, yeah, sure, uh, trade is beneficial to overall economies. It's when we look at that more micro level, we look at it within industries and within subsectors and cohorts particularly, we do start to see that some of those benefits aren't equally distributed across an economy or across um, men and women and across different um, disadvantaged groups. And I thought I'd give an example of this, and it's a, it's in a sector that's really an important one to the Australian and, and to Indonesian relationship, and that's um, agriculture. So here, the potential for trade um, between Australia and Indonesia is already an important part of our trade relationship, but the potential is huge. And it's also a really sensitive area because we know for Indonesia, um, food self-sufficiency has been a really important policy. So when we talk about trade, there's obviously um, many people who can see the huge benefits, but there's also some risks involved. And when we're talking about gender and trade, we're really trying to drill down and explore what um, those benefits are and make sure we're maximising those and managing any risks of transition. And the reason I say that about agriculture You understand Indonesia's policy around self-sufficiency to the extent that 40 million people work in agriculture in Indonesia. Um, It's both a huge source of employment, but it's an also an important source of agricultural agricultural uh, production and livelihoods. 
But at the same time, I know when I've lived in Indonesia, you can't help but be struck by food price volatility, um, uh, seasonality, and just actually that the high cost that Indonesians uh, actually face for food. So trade has huge potential benefits across the economy through um, more open trade. Um, and we see that in IOTEPA in the trade agreement. There's huge advances between Australia and Indonesia on really addressing some of those food security issues, the food um, access and, and reducing the cost of food in some areas. But where we talk about the risks for women is similarly in agriculture, you can see it because it's also in Indonesia a sector that has uh, a huge small scale farming sector. And they actually are often households comprised, over 50% of farming households are comprised of female farmers. So with trade, it's the small SMEs, smallholder farmers in agriculture that are more likely to be exposed to competition. And that's why when we talk about trade, there's huge potential gains to be made and they're the ones we want to maximise to benefit the whole economy. But there's also risks of transition to particularly uh, female-dominated um, sectors and women in SMEs that we need to consider. Mm. You mentioned evidence of how trade benefits women and we heard earlier about um the journey of Ibu Dewi, who built her eyelash business from scratch and has been able to expand mostly because she's been able to tap into markets abroad. What do you think are the main advantages for women working in exporting firms? Yeah, the story you presented earlier was, was great to hear. And what I loved about it was that here is an example of small businesses, female-led businesses, uh, which we often uh, consider aren't necessarily the main beneficiaries of big trade agreements, which are obvious, obviously um, largely focused on major international firms. But here we're, we're seeing SMEs can leapfrog um, some of the barriers to trade uh, through what's available, available online. Um, and, um, and that was a great example of that. I think the advantages for women are many. Some are very similar to, and the same as what you'd see for men. For instance, we expect trade um, and exporting firms to really have more and expanding job opportunities. Uh, we expect them to have access. And we know uh, trading internationally trading firms offer more training and technology transfer, which may not be available domestically to both women and male men in the workforce. And we also know that there's a whole range of uh, other advantages that come with trading and that tends to be um, trading industries tend to have higher capital intensity, higher incomes, uh, higher productivity and that tends to flow through um, to higher incomes including for women. So there's lots of advantages there. I thought maybe a good example of this um, is the TCF textile clothing footwear sector which in the case of Indonesia here you can see huge advantages of potential trade and there's some evidence around this of comparing the Indonesian experience to that of Vietnam. Indonesia's um, TCF sector is already employing over 5 million people. In Australia, it's hard to even fathom industries this big with this, this size of workforce and 50, over 55% of that are female. So here is a, a really important sector for female employment in Indonesia and yet the sector still faces a lot of trade barriers to the point that 30% of their costs are imported import costs. And so often the response to that is, well, we should just um, prevent imported goods so that that sector can be protected in Indonesia. But in fact, it's quite the opposite is how we see jobs growth in industries. Vietnam, as another example, has really opened up its textile, clothing and footwear industry um, to the point that about 90% of their costs, uh, their inputs are imported now. And they've 
at the same time transformed to be one of the most competitive um, and successful textiles industries in the world. So you can take lessons from the experience of other countries where openness to trade, reducing the cost of imports to uh, important Indonesian industries is really hugely advantageous to female-dominated sectors. And I think textiles is a huge one that is yet to really be tapped into but has huge potential for female incomes, female employment, female leadership um, and jobs growth for women in Indonesia. We've talked about the gains, but what are the main challenges for women-led small and medium businesses in trade? I mean, are there obstacles that are unique to female entrepreneurs? And in your opinion, how can they best overcome them? There certainly are obstacles. It's interesting when you talk about the Indonesian-Australian trade relationship. Obstacles is often the topic that comes up immediately. And there's many across the board. But we are working to reduce those and certainly the trade agreement IHF really took us a big leap forward for the trade relationship. But some of those obstacles, whether they're regulatory, the language barriers business face, the not having the networks in countries or even a major constraint businesses talk about is just that other markets are more established and, and ready to go. So Indonesia and Australia, we, we know that there are obstacles, but for women there are some particular ones that also need to be considered. And probably most dominant amongst them is the scale of many female-led firms being a huge proportion of SMEs. We know that it is hard for international trade to be pursued from that smaller size firm. But we've heard earlier in the episode of examples of where technology today, uh, digital marketing um, and an online presence can really transform um, the potential for your firm. So there are opportunities to overcome that. But there's no doubt that one of the biggest challenges for women to benefit from trade is the starting point and scale of their initial firms. There's a range of other potential risks for trade for women that we do need to keep in mind when we're pursuing uh, trade. And that in part really reflects the reality that women already are experienced job insecurity. And so with trade reform, there is transitions in sectors and we need to be mindful that women uh, tend to face already that more volatile employment we saw that in COVID, they're more likely to um, they experience greater job losses um, during the pandemic and the recovery is often hard as well. So we know that women also face that particular level of job insecurity. The other thing that limits, um, that is limiting, whilst trade should be offering huge opportunities for all members and all industries, depending on a trade, how trade reform is pursued, but often human capital that women possess, that they may have less uh, skills and educational opportunities, um, they, that can also limit their ability to take advantage of trade opportunities that are being pursued. The one that I think is also interesting is that we sometimes assume because international firms um, that they should bring greater corporate governance and standards, um, improved gender um, practices in their workplaces. And the evidence suggests that's that's not always the case. And it is great that you can get international exposure um, and attention on international firms so you can start to improve and, and see greater um, advances for women in leadership and elsewhere. But the reality is we also see that as firms move up the supply chain and new industries emerge, that employment segregation by gender can actually be entrenched and it doesn't necessarily automatically change. So that's something that we should be keeping in mind as well, that trade doesn't 
automatically, there's not a panacea to um, reforming our workplaces, but it is, there are potential opportunities there. And I thought I'd mention one that is actually um, something that Catalyst has managed to do through that kind of, through a trade discussion. Um, and the example is an activity they have done in the last 12 months between Chief Executive Women in Australia uh, and the Indonesian Business Coalition for Women's Empowerment. So these two groups in each country really are uh, the leading women in the private sector in each country. And Catalyst brought those groups together with Investing in Women, another Australian program, to try and get that discussion to happen around how do we transform the face of trade and see more women in it. And it's had some huge successes that I think show that Australia and Indonesia are really trying to be at the forefront of how to do trade better and achieve more inclusive outcomes for everyone and particularly women. And one of the examples of that is um, CW had done this great research um, uh, with depressing results, but that really set the benchmark for um, trying to improve women's leadership in large firms. CEW shared that and worked with Indonesian Business Coalition for Women's Economic Empowerment, and they've produced it for Indonesia. Indonesia as G20 chair has taken that to the G20 through B20. It's going to a range of countries in the region. And that one dialogue started around a trade relationship, a bilateral trade relationship, is beginning to really set the standard of how what we can expect of private sector firms um, in trade around women in leadership. I should add that the results weren't great. Australia's got of its ASX top 300 firms, I think there's 18 female CEOs. And in Indonesia, the research found of the top 200 listed firms, just eight female CEOs. So there's a long way to go. But I think what this reveals is the process of having the discussion around trade and its potential gendered impacts and the distributional effects there are avenues within that to really transform and change the opportunities for um, female entrepreneurs and women businesses. Thanks for mentioning the study, Amanda, that has certainly triggered talks about the issue of gender representation in C-suite in Indonesia, learning from the Australian experience. Um, I want to move on. Indonesia, like Australia, has a growing number of trade agreements with other countries, and now we have the IHEPA between us. Well, these are policy frameworks. Is there any way women could view them as having a real tangible impact? Well, I think we're all working really hard, including yourselves, um, Sundang at Catalyst, to, to make sure there's a tangible impact. And I think, I think we're starting to see that. It's even the very facts we're having a conversation around how do these trade agreements empower women, uh, ensure that females, um, business leaders are also getting access to the opportunities that trade agreements like IHF are open, I think that's a sign that there is real opportunities afoot. And the way that I think it's happening, there's some really interesting things that, for instance, Catalyst are doing, even by prioritising, you look at the trade agreements, but by making sure that we're really trying to deepen the commercial opportunities in sectors like health, education, digital services, where Females are dominant parts of the workforce, but also they're major users and beneficiaries of the actual goods and services that are the product of that sector and where they may have been excluded from health and education access in the past. By prioritising those sectors through the trade agreement, I think you're, we're really going to see that the benefits are, if not equally available, that they're certainly made more, that there's a greater priority focused on a greater inclusive outcome from the trade agreement. So I think that's one way we can see that it's starting to happen and that there's really tangible opportunities um, for women to benefit. I think in other areas, it's 
making sure that the trade agreements where there's um, supportive training and events and activities, we're seeing across the board uh, greater in- engagement involvement of females, including in non-traditional um, sectors. So, for instance, in where I spoke about earlier, manufacturing being a sector that's been a focus of trade agreements, well, the reality is advanced manufacturing is going to have a very different workforce to manufacturing of the past. And we're seeing the trade agreements and the discussions between Australia and Indonesia really move into that area of advanced manufacturing, where there's going to be huge opportunities for women who are skilling and have the skills needed to really advance that um, in a very different way to what manufacturing might have looked like in the past. So I think there's a range of tangible ways we're starting to see um, trade agreements benefits women. Uh, And I, I guess the other way that I think that I'm pretty excited about is we never anticipated that there'd be so much interest and willingness to take a gendered perspective to the trade agreement. So when we talk, I mentioned earlier, businesses looking for new trade partners, they're already very conscious of lots of the barriers and how hard trade, any international trade can be. And so when you add to the table that it's not only regulatory barriers now and all the various different changes and that you've got to navigate, we also want you to think about gender, disability inclusion and social inclusion. It almost sounds like it's another obstacle that firms have to overcome. But what we're finding is that firms are way ahead on this front, that they already know. And it's definitely increasingly evident from the research that more diverse workplaces are advantageous to them. So it's in their interest to pursue this, in part because diverse workforces drive innovation, a a, a better um, cohesive workforces, but increasingly McKinsey's reports as well as others show they improve the bottom line of firms to have greater female inclusion and diversity in the workplace. So what's pretty exciting is that the trade agreement opens up a whole range of new opportunities. I mentioned the ones in agriculture, but in health and education, there's a whole lot of further potential for the bilateral trade relationship to go further. But there are some gains there that firms are keen to take advantage of and are already thinking about how to make sure the gains are shared by everyone. Very insightful as always. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Sunday. That was Amanda Robbins and Ibu Dewi Harless on episode five of the Catalyst podcast. To all our listeners, thank you for continuing to listen to the show well into 2023. It's a brand new year and we're excited to share lots of great content with you. Until next time.